0: I am dandy.
1: I have decided that it's the month of October. Therefore, I wear on days I teach, of course, only on days I teach, I wear some sort of Halloween shirt. So today is like this really old school falling apart mummy zombie t shirt. Uh, I know. And I'm now doing a Halloween movie voting competition thing in my classes where I choose six movies, they vote on it, and then the winners will go on to like a grand event on the last day before Halloween.
0: I have uh, I have been preparing myself for the zombie apocalypse medicine meeting next week and setting the stage in my office for tattooing for a, a talk on Channel Z about tattooing and attractiveness during the zombie apocalypse.
1: So am I looking at the scene correctly? Is the skeleton tattooing Maui?
0: No, Maui's <laughs> giving, Maui is holding the skeleton's hand. Ah. Uh, and giving it moral support i will be getting assistance giving a leg not a hand from but a disabled bodied skeleton and probably doing some stick and poke on some fruit or something so there's a sausage of science segment with our producers and i have a segment about tattooing
1: we're just getting in the the halloweeny mood with zombies So today's guest, I don't think has anything to do with zombies. We could always ask her.
0: She is neither a zombie, nor does she study zombies, nor will she be talking about zombies. She
1: might. We might make her.
0: But (laughs) maybe this podcast will come out and be heard by some zombies around Halloween or sometime thereabouts.
1: I'm going with that to be in a bit of a reach, but that's okay. That's okay. Who are we bringing on today, Chris?
0: We're going to talk to Dr. Ruby Freed who is at the University of Alaska Anchorage. She did her dissertation work under Chris Kazawa at Northwestern University, studying native Alaskan women and children. Alaska, and their...
1: Alaska Native women and children, correct? Oh man,
0: I got my syntax wrong. That's there okay. is a difference, and that she's gonna tell difference. us all about that.
1: She is, she is. I remember one of the talks she gave, and now I can't remember how many meetings ago it was. Maybe two in-person meetings ago. And I remember it being really, really fascinating. So I'm actually quite excited to bring her on today. And she's already in our little waiting room. So shall we bring her in? Hi Ruby. Hello. Good, you can hear us and I hope see us. Yeah. Wonderful. So, happy Halloween, everybody,
0: and meet Dr. Ruby Freed.
1: Dr. Ruby Freed. So, Ruby, we love starting our podcast basically in the same way, in which we get to know a little bit about you and your origin story in anthropology. So, we'd love to hear how you got exposed to it, how you decided to pursue it as a career, and then how you got to the point you're at.
2: Sure. So, maybe this is something I shouldn't admit, but my first introduction to anthropology was The Naked Ape by Desmond Morris. I was in 8th grade and really interested in evolution and this was on my parents bookshelf and so I plucked it off the bookshelf and just ate it right up and of course all that good evolutionary psychology information by Desmond Morris. It, um, it's
0: certainly no worse than watching bones and coming into anthropology that way which is mm-hmm. a or or Raiders of the Lost Ark so I
2: feel like it like being in book form kind of made it seem like you should believe it more.
1: (laughs) But look how far you've come then. Like, (laughs) you were in eighth grade.
2: How would you know
1: any better? Exactly. No shame there. Um, And
2: and I will credit it for just, like, getting me interested in humans in terms of, you know, actually looking at humans as an animal species and rather rather than something that's completely separate from other animals. Mm -hmm. And it also piqued my interest in, like, human evolution, which is probably one of the reasons why I kind of started taking some anthropology classes in college.
0: We think um, all entry points are equally valid. It's not where <laughs> you start, it's where you get to. My my entry point, in some respects, was reading Freud's Civilizationist Discontents and thinking the Thanatos death instinct, like, that makes zero sense from an evolutionary perspective that we would have an instinct for death, so... Stuff we read, sometimes plausible, sometimes let's go test that.
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and it's also interesting, I wonder, the kinds of stories we tell ourselves, Mm. you know, I don't actually remember what my little eighth grade brain was thinking. (laughs) But it still encouraged you to take classes in college, so where did you go to college? I went to University of Oregon in Eugene, and so that was like a big deal because it was out of state for me. And I really wanted to go to a larger institution because I had grown up in Anchorage, which it has about 3300,000 people in it, but it still seems like a small town mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And Alaska is isolated from a lot of places. It was mind blowing to me that you could drive to another state. You know? (laughs) Um, And so that was kind of my introduction to the lower 48, as we call it up here. And yeah, and luckily Josh Snobgrass was there. I took a human origins class from somebody else that was incredibly dry to me, but I had to memorize a lot of stuff that you know, proved useful later on. But then I started taking classes from Josh and Larry Sugiyama as well and got into this understanding of, like, human biological variation that comes from both evolution, but also your social, cultural and other biological factors in terms of the environment. And so that was kind of the marriage between evolution, which is what I was super interested in, and humans, which is also something that I'm very interested in.
0: (laughs) For listeners, we haven't interviewed either Josh or Larry, but we have interviewed other folks involved with the Shuar project, which is what they are among the co-directors of. I wondered if you were involved in that project and then if yes or no, how you ended up working in Alaska as opposed to working with the Shuar still on that project.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, after I, I only minored in anthropology in undergrad, I majored in biology, which, you know, is the kind of common thread through my entire educational history. But So after I graduated from college, I was a bit aimless. I worked on an oil rig for about a year to save up money to go to South America, which is something that I wanted to do for a long time. And I wanted to learn Spanish. And so after working there for about a year, I took off to Peru, Argentina, but really landed in mostly Ecuador. And I was emailing Josh because at the time I was, interested in getting a master's degree in public health, I was asking him to write me a letter of recommendation for a master's degree in public health programs. And he said, you're in Ecuador? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm in Ecuador. And he was like, well, do you want to help out with the Schwartz project? Because you speak Spanish, and we could really help- use your help and other you know, person to help. So I spent two or three months with Larry and Felicia Mandamanos and Melissa Liebert tooling around Schwar Country in Sequoia. And then we also went up to some very remote villages upriver. That was where I really started to practice interviewing Hmm. and having that relationship with people who were from a totally different culture than me, making sure that I could allow them to have space to answer rather than just kind of going, question number one, You know, how many kids do you have? Question number two, what's your average household income? You know, and actually developing some personal relationships with people, with the public health nurses that were with us, and then also some community members. And so that was, that was really fun. I really, really loved that work. It introduced me to what anthropology looks like on the ground and also introduced me to what they talk about is market integration in a lot of ways but has very many different names cultural change social sociocultural change colonization
0: (laughs) quick aside since you mentioned it i'm curious you said giving them space to answer can you explain that a little bit more that's a that's an important sort of methodological piece that we don't often get insight into what
2: sure I think as a white, fairly hyperactive woman (laughs) coming from the United States, I, and I think a lot of people in my same position are eager to get something done, eager to collect the information and move on to the next thing. It's not always coming from a bad place. You know, you have a line of people that you're trying to interview and you don't want to keep people waiting. But I found in Ecuador and also with my current research, you have to leave space for people who are not, I mean, a a lot of it is training and enculturation into having the answers first and, you know, speaking over people in order to get your point across. I think a lot of people in the world do not function on that level in terms of, you know, trying to Cut people off or having this sense of urgency in terms of communication and answering questions from a survey. And so I think allowing for that space as a person that's coming from largely a place of power in most of those dynamics and a place of, you know, just a different way of asking questions and getting information, you need to just be able to step back, relax, take a breath, because oftentimes when you leave some silence you leave a pause that's where people start to feel more comfortable talking about things it might also be a place where people feel like they can expand upon that answer so you've maybe asked them a yes or no question but maybe they have a lot more interesting thoughts than a mm-hmm. yes or no answer and so i think the pause and just allowing for that space is a really important thing as anthropologists to consider and to remember. It's definitely a practice.
1: It's definitely a good reminder for me, as Chris is the one that allows for space. And I'm like, no, we must get on to the next question in our interview. That's so, fine. message heard, Chris, message heard. I also want to circle back to something else you said because you said it, and I'm like, wait, what? And then we just moved on that you worked on an oil rig. <laughs> I want to to know that story, and two, I want to know if there were any lessons from that oil rig that you have carried through to your career today.
2: Oh, it was a, (laughs) it was heaven and hell as an anthropologist. (laughs) So in Alaska, it's pretty normal to work on an oil rig. I was on an offshore oil rig in the Cook Inlet, and I was the only woman on the oil rig, almost the entire time I was there, which was interesting.
1: How many people Um, would roughly be on there at a time?
2: Anywhere between 30 and 60 at a time. Yeah, and I was the cook.
1: I was the prep cook. Because of course the only woman is the cook.
2: (laughs) And so I was actually working there during the, the first time Obama got elected. And that was very intense. I was one of the only, you know, liberal leaning people. I was to say it was a
0: rick full of Democrats, of course, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although we found each other, the few <laughs> on the on Taking the my secret
0: belt. smiles. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. But I will say, I mean, I had lots of very interesting conversations with people. This was kind of in the earlier days of Fox News, and, and so at the that point, it was kind of more of an intellectual endeavor rather than an emotional one in mm. a lot of ways. I grew up in Alaska, so it's not yeah. that uncommon for me to have conversations with Republicans, conservatives, libertarians. It was very interesting, and the day that Obama got elected, I was one of three people that was excited about that. <laughs> but, you know, it's also an, it's also a question of safety and survival out there. Mm-hmm. And so people recognize something greater than your political affiliation and take care of people. And you're literally stuck in the middle of the ocean with a bunch of people.
0: You make a great point. I don't, I don't know that this gets brought up enough. In our interviews but it's certainly a ubiquitous thing for many of us whose populations probably tend to be more politically conservative than we are personally anthropology is is well known as a lefty discipline in many respects uh, but we study people across all walks of life and towing various lines is part and parcel of doing field work This like good good training in a way
2: yeah and just in the interest of IRB, I did not actually do any research out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, it's the kind of thing that- Formal research.
1: <laughs> This might be me like stretching a connection but it reminds me very much of, you know, my experience in a powerlifting gym, which was a very conservative group of people. And I was the only woman. Granted, I didn't have to live with them every single day in the middle of the ocean, but I've had those conversations and it's a tough thing. So I I get it. Anyway, I just thought that was too interesting to pass up. So thank you for sharing. And so you spent lots of time in Ecuador. So when did, a PhD in anthropology become like that's the thing I want to do. Yeah
2: in Ecuador I also did some volunteer work. I actually call it mostly just hanging out with traditional Quechua midwives because I didn't really do that much. Volunteering kind of has the connotation of actually providing service to people. I was primarily doing observation at that time and that really got me interested in maternal and child health and alternative ways of thinking about birth and maternal health and early infant care and so i came back from ecuador i mean there's a lot to unpack with that experience too but we don't have a bunch of time but after i came back i was just kind of unmoored again and decided to go work at the NIH in their intramural baccalaureate program. You can apply for that to work in a lab there for two years as a post-baccalaureate or after your bachelor's degree. And so at that point I was still kind of like med school anthro grad school, med school, Mm. anthro grad school, or should I become a nurse? So I thought having a little bit more experience would kind of help me suss those options out. And I definitely realized that I was not made for bench work there. Doesn't have enough people for Mm. me. (laughs) But when I thought about med school, it just, it didn't seem upstream enough for me. I was more drawn to bigger ideas and kind of theoretical approaches than I was to just biological processes and health outcomes and kind of putting band-aids on Mm -hmm. things that have already passed rather than actually figuring out better ways of allowing people to be healthy. So, but I still do love biological processes. I can totally nerd out on those. So that's how I chose anthropology, uh, grad school for anthropology. And I applied to a bunch of programs and I read some of Chris Kazawa's work, I mean, a, there's a, a lot of amazing anthropologists who work on intrauterine growth and intergenerational health, but Chris's work spoke to me in a really important way, and so I was luckily accepted into that program, and that's how I got to Northwestern.
1: And Josh was also a Northwestern grad, but under Bill Leonard, not Chris Kuzawa. So yeah. I'm sure he was able to give you a bit of an inside scoop as well.
2: Yeah, he. I think he wrote a letter of recommendation for me. <laughs> <laughs> it was really scary for going there for the interview. Um, you know, back then I thought anthropology professors were like these amazing untouchable beings. <laughs> <Staying>. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe they are. I still am not one. I would, <laughs> so, But yeah. So Kara that's is kind good. of how that. Am-
0: amazing. But she allows me to poke her every once in a while. Who is? Kara.
2: Oh, Kara. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will say, Kara, I read one of your... Was it in um, Sapiens? Did you write an article? That about was the powerlifting
1: one. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. That like That's what hit me with the oil rig.
2: Yeah, I loved that piece. I think I also read it while I was doing CrossFit. And it was very similar, you know, as like a bigger woman who people kind of look at weird, That you're like, oh, you exercise? Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> also untouchable because the headphones are on and not wanting to be talked to. And also yeah. lifting heavy objects, which exactly. can hurt your mm-hmm. throat.
2: <laughs> but I also I think I remember in that piece you also talked about kind of like the acceptance of you mm-hmm. but because you kind of represented like a anomaly and you were like interesting
1: it was, it was just me not all women
2: yep yeah we and accepted. I think that was true yeah I think mm-hmm. that was true on the oil rig too like I was young I was like 21 I you know I was just like this fun little person that was
1: different yeah like (laughs) you become that exception woman like you're different than other women and you're more fun and like no you just actually bothered to get to know me
2: (laughs) (laughs) or you were forced to get to know me basically yeah it's just yeah it's
1: that that still hits me anytime I think about writing that piece I still get very emotional over it I'm teaching uh, an anthropology of sports class this semester. And last week or the week before, we just finished up transgender issues and athletics. And I had my students watch a a documentary on Netflix called Transformer, about a former Marine current power lifter transitioning from male to female. And like you totally saw those kinds of things with the, they call themselves they now, uh, their friend group and how the friends accepted them as them, but not necessarily accepted all transgender athletes, and so it was. It was quite interesting, but this individual versus group acceptance thing is very, very real. Anyway, we need to get back to your work. <laughs>
0: it's been a couple of years since we've, at least since I've seen you, Ruby, and since then you started a job as an assistant professor in health science. You're back in Alaska. You're at the University of Alaska Anchorage. Yes. Yep. How's it how is it to start a new job in the middle of a pandemic in Alaska?
2: Well, I started the job before the pandemic, luckily. Uh, I can't imagine starting a job in the pandemic.
0: I mean, um, really, you're in your your first year, right? Last I, year. You're yeah,
2: three. I just finished my first year. I started in August of 2019.
0: So, you 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 did you had all of almost the whole semester yeah. <laughs> to get settled cuz let's face it, we knew about it in December.
2: I think generally my experience in my position really speaks to finding where you fit the best. When you're reading the professors in and you're just trying to find a job, I think people kind of talk about fit, but really the ultimate goal is to just get a job <laughs> for most people. And I just got super, super lucky. I a job came up in my hometown where I wanted to eventually move back mm. to. And it was the most amazing possible job. It allows me the freedom and the support to pursue my own research interests with very little teaching required of me. It's a dream as a a junior faculty member to really be able to focus and hone in on your research trajectory and program and be able to do the reading and all of that required without additional stressors and additional, I mean, a lot of my friends, you know, just describe their first years as just a total onslaught of responsibility and new things. And I was afforded the opportunity to be able to develop relationships with potential collaborators, potential communities that I would partner with, and so I really feel like it's been kind of a dream in a lot of ways. All of my fellow faculty at UAA are so nice and super supportive. They have become friends in the uh, short time I've known them, and we have also started multiple projects together, and so In that, I think this job has been really awesome because it allows me to collaborate with other people and other anthropologists. We have a number of anthropologists in our Division of Population Health Science. So a lot of like-minded folks, but then a lot of people who are kind of stretching my brain in different ways, which is really awesome. When the pandemic happened... I had just gotten back from Hawaii, so (laughs) I was like, woo, floating along. And uh, Alaska earlier, early on, did a fairly decent job responding to it. I mean, we're the only state besides Hawaii that can restrict air travel Mm -hmm. or at least put in control measures in air travel. And Canada shut down so nobody can drive here, really. And so we kept things Kept a lid on things pretty well early on. I actually was recruited along with the rest of my division to help with the response by the municipality of Anchorage to COVID. And so kind of got dropped into lit reviews that I never thought I was going to be doing in terms of testing priority.
0: Your municipality Uh, enlisted the help of its social scientists to conduct social science research and planning?
1: What? Yeah. (laughs) So, the municipality kind of drafted you all in, and so what what came of that? Did they listen?
2: (laughs) Yes! They definitely listened. I mean, Anchorage is the largest city in Alaska, and it's also the only city, I believe, that has its own public health department, Hmm. and that public health department is made up of a very few number of individuals, and so... Like most things in Alaska, we don't have a lot of people, but we have a lot of desire to help out our fellow Alaskan. And so it was really a coming together of efforts um, with the university, with the state, and with the municipality of Anchorage, and also the tribal health corporations and tribal health leaders in Alaska to come together and decide in terms of testing priority, we did a bit On school reopening, although that was actually mostly a separate process, what kind of metrics to use to decide when Mm. to close businesses, close bars, close restaurants, reopen them to 50%. Um, And so we were all just kind of thrown into this and put our best foot forward in terms of also modeling the pandemic as it developed in Anchorage and Alaska. One thing that I'm really proud about is, and one thing that was probably really good to involve university folks in, was to ensure that there was an undercurrent of equity Mm. in the response. So making sure that testing facilities were not in just easily accessible places for people with cars but also for people relying on public transportation or foot. And also in terms of the school response and just making sure we're protecting our most vulnerable communities in Anchorage uh, in various different ways. And that was something that we came out with really early on. It needs to be based on need and equity.
0: It sounds like that's wonderful. And I I could go on and on about, how that should be a model for all of our institutions. But let's talk about your work with equity, right? This is actually a thread of your work. And so you're highly qualified to have been consulted. You've been working with Alaskan Native people through your dissertation, including a number of local collaborations there, both institutional and it sounds like native groups. So I I wonder if you could just give us an overview of that research and and what you've been doing.
2: Sure. So Uh, When I first started grad school, I did really want to work with Alaska Native populations in Alaska. I'm very connected to my home state, and there are a number of health disparities that Alaska Native people experience in Alaska that I thought could really be modified by some research in anthropology. And so...
0: Just to interject, because of the mistake that I made... Right, Alaskan Native is Indigenous Peoples in Alaska, correct? As opposed yeah. to, what did I say at first, Native, uh, Alaska. Native Alaskans, which is anyone born in Alaska.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's generally the distinction. Okay. So early on in my graduate school, I wanted to do this research. And within the first two or three years, I started working and met researchers and medical professionals and community members and IRB officials. At the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium and South Central Foundation, and the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium or ANTHC provides statewide management of tribal health services, and this really began in full force in 1998. And it's a nonprofit tribal health organization that provides wellness programs, research, rural provider training. And sanitation system constructions in rural Alaska and across the state. And South Central Foundation is a Native-owned nonprofit healthcare organization that serves Alaska Native and American Indian people in the Anchorage service area, but also conducts Alaska Native Health Research across the state. And these two organizations both run the Alaska Native Medical Center or ANMC. And ANTHC also houses the Alaska Area Institutional Review Board or Alaska Area IRB. And so I spoke with people in all of those organizations and friends and family who have knowledge or are Alaska Native people to kind of get an idea of what kind of research should I be doing. And I initially pitched research on placental epigenetics because this was the time where epigenetics was really starting to get very interesting and I got really interested in it early on and so I kind of soft pitched this idea to researchers at the Elastinian Medical Center and other organizations and there wasn't any cultural taboos that anybody was aware of about collecting placentas but since the Elastinian Medical Center isn't a research institution I would have basically been chasing placentas and <laughs> with <laughs> with potentially not very much success because they don't have the processes in place to mm-hmm. notify people of collection. So their nurses aren't used to putting placentas into a collection bin rather than just the uh, biomedical waste.
0: Uh, whatever the collection placental collection device.
1: News. I'm imagining a yeah, placenta running away. <laughs> With that an umbilical cord like trailing behind and Ruby running after it, <laughs> trying to grab it by the umbilical cord. So, this is what's happened today. <laughs>
2: I mean, placentas are amazing, amazing organs. But
0: they don't out. have feet.
2: They do not have feet. They don't. No. They can like undulate, <laughs> flop. That's
1: what we'll say. <laughs> this has gone off. Anyway, up. so you couldn't do
2: placentas. So <laughs> no, what they did you couldn't go do with placentas? And I was also, like, very heavily discouraged from doing this research with Alaska Native people for my graduate studies by most people, just because they said timeline for these is not conducive to a graduate school timeline, there's a lot of hurdles that you have to jump through, and relationships that you have to build before you can conduct this research well, and we're just not sure that you're gonna be able to do that in time. And you know, if you're trying to graduate in five years, I can tell you right now, it's not gonna work out. Mm. I said, well, five to seven years. (laughs) And I just kept pushing for it because I really knew that this was something I really wanted to do. And eventually in the multiple conversations I had and learning also about the existing resources, I came up with some research questions that were still about intergenerational health, still about how the intrauterine environment and maternal health impacts fetal development and early infant growth, which were really the core pillars of what I was interested in, in the first place. I decided to utilize, and I was very interested in uh, traditional And subsistence foods, and especially in the Anchorage area, in urban areas, because they hadn't been studied in urban Alaska very much, mostly in rural Alaska. And the relationship between subsistence food consumption and access and metabolic and mental health had been looked at in especially the Yukon Kuskokwim Delta region. But that research was, you know, there were a number of studies, but it was incomplete and had not yet looked at impacts on birth weight and things like that. So I thought that that was going to be an interesting contribution to both anthropology and Alaska Native public health in general that I could give.
0: So I want to, I want to put yeah. a pin in that for just a second because one of uh, the pieces, either in your dissertation or one of the abstracts you sent us, I, I noted that as well that your focus was on the urban setting and that the Key variable that seemed to be in terms of food insecurity was access to traditional foods, right? So I'm wondering if you could unpack that. What what does that mean? And what's different about the urban setting there?
2: Sure. So, Anchorage, like I said earlier, has about 300,000 people in it. And there has been a fairly steady rural to urban migration trend in Alaska. 2010 was the turning point in which the majority of Alaska Native people lived in urban areas rather than rural areas. But most of the research had been conducted in rural areas. And people understand traditional food access in urban areas through anecdotes. And you know, in Alaska, people just know how these things work. It wasn't very well represented in the academic literature or well documented, at least the ways that Western scientists document them. And so Anchorage has been called the largest Alaska Native village because there are the most Alaska Native people live in Anchorage as compared to any other community. Access in Anchorage is really different depending on who you are and is dependent on multiple different dynamics. So, access in rural Alaska has been changed a lot over the years, especially through colonial activities like forced permanent settlement, schooling, boarding schools, that really impeded the ability to access subsistence foods and also impeded intergenerational knowledge transfer about plants and animals that sustain populations for literally thousands of years or since time immemorial. And also governmental regulation on subsistence practices or What is now termed a lack of food sovereignty, in a lot of ways, or as part of food sovereignty, takes away the ability to change hunting seasons according to changes in migration and things like that, especially due to climate change. And so, all of these changes in rural subsistence and traditional food practices have major implications for urban subsistence food access because a lot of the subsistence foods that are coming into urban Alaska are being sent. In from friends and family members, extended family, immediate family members that are sending seal and muktuk and seal oil and salmon and walrus and all sorts of birds into Anchorage. And when people come in for a medical visit, they oftentimes bring a big cooler. And so rural to urban food sharing networks is a really important part of that. It also is related to a more a trade and barter system in a lot of ways where a person, a family member, say comes into Anchorage and brings a whole cooler of subsistence foods or traditional Alaska Native foods. And then their family member who they're staying with in Anchorage takes them to Costco or Walmart, or Fred Meyer, and fills up that cooler again with store-bought foods that are much more expensive or extremely difficult to get out in rural areas. Also including a lot of times um, school supplies and things like that because the subsistence and traditional food uh, season generally is wrapping up around October, right when school has started up. So there's that trade and barter system, and there's also a food sharing network. So even if you don't have people sending food to you directly from rural Alaska or people even getting it to you from around Anchorage, people might share it with their neighbors, their other family members, either regularly or at family gatherings, at weddings, funerals, baby showers. Thanksgiving, Christmas, those kinds of family gathering times. And I did see a lot of evidence of this in my research where most people shared traditional foods when they got them and when they had them. And over half of the women that I interviewed also engaged in traditional or subsistence activities within the Anchorage area or while living in Anchorage. So we have access to dip netting, which is kind of a foreign way to fish for a lot of people who don't live in Alaska. But you get a giant net that's up to five feet wide, and you go stick it in a river, <laughs> in the mouth of a river. And there are so many salmon that are coming in in July, in the end of July, um, on the Kenai River and the Kasilof River, down south from Anchorage on the road system, that the fish actually just swim into your net and you haul them back into shore. And um, this year, my family and I got 26 reds and two pinks. And wow, we have a pretty full freezer, although that is absolute peanuts compared to a lot of subsistence activities in both rural and urban Alaska. I think there's a misconception that Alaska Native people As they move from rural to urban Alaska, there's kind of this inevitable dietary change and inevitable, in a lot of ways, assimilation to a more Western way of life. And I don't think that that is necessarily true for everybody who is coming into Anchorage to live and to raise their children or in pursuit of new job opportunities and things like that. And so... My research also shows that access is heavily related to preference, preference Mm -hmm. for Alaska Native traditional foods. So, I mean, 90% of the women that I interviewed preferred subsistence foods over store-bought foods. So there is this continued and very strong preference for traditional foods no matter where you're living in Alaska. And I think that's really important. And most women also cited traditional foods as the most healthy foods to feed their children, which is a really important part of this because if you are not able to access traditional foods in Anchorage um, while you're living here, often for reasons out of your own personal control, you're going to want to be able to continue those traditions on with your children Mm -hmm. in most cases. And if you don't have access to those, people are worried that their kids will lose the taste for traditional Mm -hmm. foods or lose that connection they believe is so important with the land and with their community and with their Alaska Native culture. So this was one of the reasons why, or many of the reasons why access in Anchorage is super important to understand because it's not only has health implications, which is what kind of initially brought me to this research, but it also has huge implications in terms of cultural persistence and mental health and identity, Alaska Native identity, and feeling as if you can still engage with your family and your culture and your And in many cases, women talked about their ancestors and their grandmas and their grandpas and how they wanted to feed their kids uh, walrus and salmon and herring eggs dipped in seal oil to make their grandma happy. And so these are all super, super important things that a lot of public health narratives about traditional foods really miss. I'm hearing that this
1: was one of those projects that was truly biocultural. You know, you really got down to the work of what traditional food meant and how it's being, like you said, cultural persistence. And so this seems like one part of your dissertation. So if I could force you to do this, and if you you don't have to, if you could sum (laughs) up the one or two really big takeaways from your, your dissertation work, what are
2: those? This is not by any means my own finding. Alaska Native people know this. (laughs) But traditional foods are incredibly important for both mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. And I think well-being is a word that gets tossed around a lot right now as kind of a catch-all phrase, but well-being in terms of being able to live your life in the best way possible and also the way that you want to live your life. I think kind of the broad takeaway from my dissertation is, okay, eating more subsistence foods leads to lower pre-pregnancy BMI, lower pre-pregnancy BMI led to lower measures of circulating blood glucose, and lower glucose leads to, you know, lower birth weight or less risk of higher birth weight. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's one of the takeaways. And then another takeaway is that traditional foods are this, nexus of both resistance and resilience for Alaska Native people, no matter where they're living in the state. And like I said, it's not this inevitable move toward uh, store-bought foods when you're living in Anchorage, just because you're here for a job or medical care or to help your grandma get the medical care she needs it is also has major intergenerational implications in terms of this extreme importance put on yes of course i like subsistence foods and i like traditional foods i grew up eating these things and a lot of my best childhood memories are associated with this and this is these are one of the main reasons why i want my children to be able to experience them as well And so there's this very deliberate choice for a lot of Alaska native women. I don't mean to paint with a a super broad brush. I also interviewed women who could kind of take it or leave it, but the vast majority had a major, had placed major importance on traditional foods for themselves and for their children for a whole variety of reasons, including that they believe their bodies had evolved to eat these foods and these are the foods that help keep them the healthiest and there's also some western research that corroborates that as well a lot of it has to do with the experience of traditional foods and how they contribute to this cultural continuity in a world that is still very marked by a lot of colonial practices and colonial-based power structures that Are working against Alaska Native mental and physical health. That's why I kind of say resistance and resilience.
0: Yeah, I like that. The nexus of resistance and resilience. I was thinking that's a great title for the podcast. And it also (laughs) reminds me of I'm actually writing up a final report on my tattooing research in Samoa and think of that cultural practice in a similar way. So I very, very much understand. Um, what you're saying there so aside from working on the pandemic there what are you doing now and and what's next
2: can I actually just add a really quick side note about like take homes from your dissertation yeah okay so I just wanted to say that the research itself is important but also how you do the research Mm -hmm. is just as or if not more important, like recognizing your position, your own positionality, privilege, and other power structures that you are working within and often benefiting from, from, and then making decisions on how you're going to shape, conduct, disseminate your research from that viewpoint, I think is very paramount, especially for anthropologists who are consistently working against a pretty bad history of how we treat populations that we work with. And so, There's also kind of this perception that community-based or tribally driven approach to research can inhibit good science in whatever way that person is defining that. But I really do think that it's quite fundamental to good science because you're not going to be getting very good data if you're working against the population or not fully within the population that you are working with and trying to help improve their life and their um, health outcomes. And so I just wanted to say that those are, that's like a false dichotomy that I think a lot of people um, draw and use as an excuse to not, or use as a barrier in thinking about how they can conduct community-based research and uh, tribally driven research. So I'm going to publish my dissertation research and I'm working on that now. I'm also, we got an NSF Rapid grant to do COVID-19 research in remote Alaska and we're looking at a lot of different kinds of things, how this has impacted daily life in terms of access to medical care, mental health, in terms of how Quarantining, com- going back into villages after seeking medical care outside—how's that? How that's being followed and impacting people in rural villages. The thing that I'm most interested in is uh, understanding impacts on traditional food access and consumption Mm. and how COVID-19 has potentially limited people's ability to access traditional foods in remote Alaska. Not being able to form large hunting parties, not being able to go out with your neighbor or your Fifth cousin, or your uncle that you usually go out with because you're trying to keep your bubble small. We have also been dealing with a lot of climate change related uh, barriers to getting traditional foods.
0: I was say, I'm, I'm really sorry to cut you off, but we're out of yeah. time. Oh,
2: <laughs> do one more thing though. Yeah. Um, I'm starting a research project with the Alliot community of St. Paul Island on traditional food security using the traditional food security conceptual framework that was developed by the Inuit Circumpolar Council, hopefully to create a measure of traditional food security that can then be used to examine the relationship between traditional food security and mental and physical health. So both focusing on risk and resilience factors. So that is going to be um, a big part of my research going forward.
1: Awesome, and then real quick for that research and for the rapid, are you looking at accepting any grad students or postdocs, any any advertising?
2: Unfortunately, we don't have a PhD program in Anchorage in my division, Um, but I am always happy. I'm working with two master's degree students right now, one in dietetics and one in social work. I'm always happy to meet with or talk to students who are interested in doing research with Alaska Native populations or even just in Alaska in general, certainly willing to have a phone conversation or email conversation about that.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And then we always like to end with a a fun question of, what kind of things do you do when you aren't working? Your work-life integration.
2: Yeah. So I've been kind of trying to avoid the news lately. Um, (laughs) I do read about it, but I do not listen or watch. Um, And so I've been filling up a lot of my days with listening to the Ologies podcast by Allie Ward. (laughs) And it just kind of like keeps my love of science alive, uh, coming from lots of different angles. I also just am trying to run and ski and stay a bit silly (laughs) through these times, just because this is a lot for everybody Mm -hmm. to handle right now. and. I think putting mental health above above many other things in your life right now is really important. So,
0: it's a good message. Not, certainly not above Twitter arguments.
2: <laughs> that is the worst thing for mental health.
1: <laughs> anyway, Ruby, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so so much for for spending some time with us and talking about your work today. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>